Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph. This is the 186th edition of the program. Thank you for being with us. On the show today, I am going to be focusing on a recently released book, which is called We Go Where They Go, The Story of Anti-Racist Action. This book documents the organizing of ARA, Anti-Racist Action, across North America. This was a group very active in the 1980s and 90s. It organized young activists, musicians, a lot of people involved in the punk rock scene to confront racism that was across the board. There were formations in places like the Canadian province of Ontario where you had openly racist organizations like the Heritage Front that were organizing during this time. The anti-racist action group took this fight against racism directly to these organizations, white supremacist organizations, that shaped a struggle in a way that was very different from the approach from legal authorities or political discourse of the mainstream and actually organized to directly confront these racist institutions. A description of the book says, what does it mean to risk all for your beliefs? How do you fight an enemy in your midst? We Go Where They Go recounts the thrilling story of a massive forgotten youth movement that set the stage for today's anti-fascist organizing in North America, when skinheads and punks in the late 1980s found their communities invaded by white supremacists and neo-Nazis they fought back. Influenced by anarchism, feminism, black liberation, and indigenous sovereignty, they created anti-racist action. So this is a conversation with one of the co-authors, Kirsten Schwartz, and the author of the foreword, Indigenous artist and activist Gord Hill. And here's our conversation about the recent release book, We Go Where They Go, The Story of Anti-Racist Action. I'm one of the, the co-authors of We Go Where They Go, The Story of Anti-Racist Action. I live in Toronto and I was involved with ARA in the Toronto chapter uh, throughout the 90s and also took part in a lot of the network activities. So uh, in the US and other Canadian cities and towns. And um, I was just really involved in it. And um, after leaving uh, the work, I mean, I was, you know, I've participated in other grassroots things since then. and. Um, but after leaving that, you know, for years, many of us who'd been involved during the kind of high point were talking about how there really should be a book about it, you know, that it would, that we wanted to tell the story and kind of collect some of the experiences because we knew that it wouldn't really be captured anywhere um, if we didn't. And uh, it finally kind of happened. It, um, there was a young student who was too young to participate in any of the events that we were talking about <laughs> but he heard about ARA through the hardcore scene he was a musician and he started looking into it and met some of the people who were involved back in the day and you know they gained their trust and then even after he finished his school he wanted to keep working on it so he kind of you know started pulling a group of uh, potential authors or collaborators to together and when I heard about that I was like I'm in you know let me participate, let me contribute. And um, then uh, 
one of our group had the great idea of inviting Gord to participate. Um, so I'll turn it over to him. Yeah, okay, thanks. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, my name is Gord Hill. I'm from the Kwakwakiwak Nation, mostly involved in indigenous people's movements. Uh, but back in the late 1980s, I was uh, my first politicization, my radicalization was in the punk scene. And um, <clears throat> that was like 1987 or so. And we had, uh, there was always a problem with uh, skinheads and or Nazi boneheads in the music scene coming to shows or assaulting people and that. But I think around 1989 or 1990, they started to get a little more organized. And so we kind of formed uh, these informal anti-fascist uh, groups. But we never uh, got to the, the level of activity that the Toronto ARA had. Um, so we worked with Toronto ARA. Um, but in Vancouver, uh, we always just kind of kept it um, a kind of a more informal network of anti-fascists that we could mobilize when we needed to, just because they, they just weren't on the same level of organizing as you saw in Toronto, which had probably the largest and one of the best organized fascist movements in North America at the time with the Heritage Front. Um, and so we continued this work probably until, I would say, the, maybe 1993, 1994, and then our experience with fascist organizing in the when I was living in the Vancouver area, it really declined after that. Uh, there was still uh, small groups or whatever, but it just wasn't really uh, a serious uh, problem for 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 quite a while in Vancouver. And then uh, yeah, when the when Kristen and others were were working on this book, they asked me if I'd, I'd do the introduction in a comic book style, and so I was happy to do that and. Uh, yeah, I attended an event, a launch, a book launch in Vancouver a few months ago, and it went really well. So I think it's a really important book. Like this type of history, it's so easy to lose it. Like I bet uh, there's a lot of younger Antifa activists today that have no real uh, understanding of the history of anti-racist action. And uh, I think it's a really valuable history to maintain, for sure. Thank you both. Um, so building on what you just said, Gord, I think it would be important to get into some of the chapters and details of the book. But before that, there are going to be some people listening to this who don't know what is ARA. So you're both referencing ARA, anti-racist action. Um, can you just describe sort of the idea of the organization, um, sort of its connection to like counterculture, but at the same time to anarchist ideas? Sure. I mean, um, I guess I could take that one. Um, so ARA was a network uh, of groups and individuals um, that was formed in 1987, 1988 in Minneapolis. Um, but the idea and the sort of organizing model spread throughout North America, and there's still groups that use that name today. Um, it was um, addressing like organized racism uh, like skinhead organizing, Nazi skinhead organizing, we call them boneheads, right? Um, in the like punk and hardcore scene first, um, just like Gord was talking about, like that was a period when the far right was kind of taking a page for what was happening in the UK and trying to do the same thing in North America. So there was this kind of organized push and it was amplified a lot in the mainstream media uh, by talk 
show uh, like TV talk show hosts that were um, like hosting, you know, basically brawls on set between racist skinheads and, you know, people from the audience, including some, sometimes the hosts themselves would get in on it. So this kind of all gave a bunch of free publicity to this racist organizing strategy and um, uh, uh, cemented this idea that like skinheads were synonymous with racism, you know, and which was really unfortunate because it's not, doesn't reflect like where the skinhead scene came from. But anyway, uh, there was this big push and people like, uh, you know, the Metzgers um, who had a group called White Aryan Resistance in California, they were aggressively promoting this approach. So, and then at the same time, all over North America, there were efforts to kind of mainstreamize like white supremacist ideology. So David Duke was a congressman at one point, like he was a past KKK organizer who then sort of, you know, on paper renounced his ideas and then got himself elected. You know, it was like a kind of a, you know, big deal. And, uh, you know, again, sort of mainstream making is trying to make those ideas more mainstream. So it was kind of a forerunner to what we see on a kind of bigger scale today, actually. Right. Um, so they were making all of those efforts. And ARA was the effort of young people in the countercultures to kind of fight back against this first starting in their own scenes. Um, but and making sure the races wouldn't have a chance to like organize shows or have a presence, you know, in the street scene or whatever. Um, but then it kind of went beyond that, right? Because first of all, ARA people started going to confront and challenge um, the KKK when they were doing these rallies in the Midwest, in throughout the Midwest in the U.S. Um, at that point, there were rallies like like in some states would be like almost every weekend, there'd be like a Klan rally, you know, with the whole nine yards, like the, the robes, everything uh, protected by like, you know, huge numbers of police. Right. So this could be a kind of a spectacle and ARA people organized to try to make those events as unempowering and uninspiring for the racists as possible, you know. Um, uh, so that was you know, one big thing that was happening in the U.S. and then on the Canadian side, as Gord mentioned, or as Gord introduced, um, we were dealing with the Heritage Front, which was like an effort more on the David Duke model or like trying to bring together both things. They were trying to have like kind of mainstream acceptability um, and introduce like more racist ideas into the mainstream and make them acceptable or socially palatable or whatever. Um, and at the same time, recruit from the street scene, you know, and um, develop a kind of fighting force on the streets. So in Toronto, that was what we were dealing with. And um, also Ottawa, also Kitchener, Waterloo and Hamilton, like a lot of different they were they were trying to organize throughout southern Ontario. So we tried to do the same thing as a kind of very grassroots youth oriented response. That's great. Um, so building on that. I think back to the first point that was mentioned briefly at the top, this idea that maybe there are some tones in a lot of mainstream media, like political tonality around like, oh, well, you know, anti-racism is, of course, the natural state of affairs in liberal Canada. I've, of course, I have no agreement with this, right? But the sort of tonality of, oh, well, power will protect people. Um, what you're describing, like this period around the Heritage Front or what we saw 
you know, with uh, the overt fascist racism of, you know, Trump supporters, and there's many in Canada, uh, show a very different story. But I think um, one thing that is uh, so important about what you're documenting is showing how grassroots organizing actually pushed this back and, and like was part of, you know, on the streets challenging of the normalization of this overt racism. Um, and part of that was, you know, a period of time in the 90s where post what was called the Oka crisis, but like the uprising against Canadian colonialism, uh, there was that connection made by ARA, which is uh, important. Um, yeah, so Gord, maybe if you have any thoughts about sort of like understanding that these ideas of anti-racist action are like, they've been around a long time and it's definitely not the Canadian state that is the one that has driven these ideas for, for many obvious reasons. If you could talk a bit about that from your perspective as, you know, an artist and, you know, somebody involved in the punk scene, but also somebody who's been so involved in indigenous movements. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, one thing about uh, anti-racist action and, and some of the other groups, like the groups we have today with Antifa, I mean, I think one thing that distinguishes them from other groups is that they use a militant direct action and they actively confront fascists organizing in the streets and in the community and stuff like that. And that's something that really distinguishes them from uh, more state-funded kind of liberal anti-racist groups. Because, uh, you know, a really common experience was uh, if there was a fascist rally happening somewhere, the liberal uh, state-funded anti-racist organization would hold a rally on the opposite side of the city kind of thing to, you know, to draw people into a, an anti-racist protest and avoid any kind of confrontation or direct action with the fascists. And that's something that ARA, uh, you know, it took a real strong stand against. I mean, that's why the, the slogan of the title of the book comes from We Go Where They Go, because they wanted to avoid this kind of liberal uh, posturing, you know, we're anti-racist, but we're not actually going to do anything about the fascists organizing on the other side of town. So I think that's something important to remember because there, there are these like state-funded kind of liberal anti-racist organizations. And one thing about the state, I think in these types of uh, settler, colonial settler societies we live in is like they're, they are quite multicultural. They're multinational because we have people from all around the world who've immigrated to these, these countries now. And so it's, it's in the interest of the state to appear as like mo not only multicultural, but also anti-racist and to act like they, you know, they're taking action against these, uh, these fascist organizations. So in Canada, we've seen uh, some of the uh, anti-terrorist legislation used against uh, organizations like Blood and Honor, for example. But um, I mean, it's, it's like uh, the, the white supremacy is like, the state, the colonial state, the foundation of it is based on white supremacy. And it's only these, uh, this kind of posturing and uh, rhetoric that the state adopts to portray itself as anything other than this institution which has its roots in this white supremacist culture. Looking at it from like an indigenous perspective, I mean, we certainly don't see the state being an anti-racist institution <laughs> you know considering the the levels of racism and institutionalized racism that indigenous peoples face here but uh yeah so drawing out a bit um this idea of the connection between the state and 
you know, the history of racism on a structural level that shapes Canada. Um, I mean, let's get a little bit specific in the context of Ontario. Uh, you know, the book goes into the heritage front and that, from what I understand, has links to what was the Orange Order, you know, which was like that grouping of like colonial politicians that really wanted a Toronto that was only sort of governed by WASP, uh, like British Anglo-Saxon politicians, the Orange Order, the idea of like sort of the exclusive nature of like power in Canada as governed in the context of a British sort of driven uh, framework of political dynasties. And I just saw a parallel between like the heritage front in the more modern times and sort of, you know, some of the power structures in the past. So I guess going into what you actually talk about in the book, so the heritage front uh, and the fact that I know, Kirsten, that you went and confronted gatherings of this organization. So can you talk, Kirsten, about like actually confronting uh, organization? Um, I think that, you know, in the present uh, context, um, people might, might not sort of get a sense that ARA was directly in the face of, you know, Gord was talking about going to where they go, right, and to confront those meetings. Can you maybe share a story of what that actually looked like? You know, and I think that's what's so powerful about the conversations that this book will open up is getting a sense from people who are actually involved, not necessarily just, you know, people writing about that, but people who are on the ground like you. Um, I could tell a story of uh, just like the first encounter that I had with ARA, if you like. I mean, I had heard um, an interview on a community radio station with two anti-fascist researchers and activists, one of them being Rodney Bobby Wash, who was with uh, the Native Canadian Centre of Toronto and um, a group called Clan Busters that was very grassroots that he was working on. And uh, so he was on the air talking about uh, the Heritage Front and how it was uh, growing and that there was a threat. And he'd, uh, you know, uh, his group was monitoring and trying to like kind of raise the alarm, I guess, among the community. Um, but he had been involved with um, bringing forward a application to have uh, a human rights complaint actually against the hotline that the Heritage Front was operating, right? So they had this like telephone hotline. This is all pre-internet, right? This telephone hotline. So people would call in and leave a message and they would hear this like, you know, outgoing message, this greeting from the Heritage Front that was changed every two, three days. And it was like a kind of racist vitriol kind of um, recording, right? And so he had... Uh, Rodney Babawash had laid a complaint with the Human Rights Commission about this, and he uh, was going to go to a court appearance, and he wanted some people to have his back, and so he was encouraging people to come out, right? And so I called in after the show, and I asked him how I could help, and he, you know, sort of invited me along to this thing, and so I show up, and we were chatting, and then all of a sudden, I see this, like, group of people, like, coming, marching down the street, Right. And it was, he says, oh, good, they're here, you know, and it was the area people and it was just like a whole bunch of punk rockers, right? And uh, then we head across the street and the heritage from people are approaching and then there's just this melee, right? It was just like a fight, all like people were just going at each other and running through bushes and um, there were police horses all of a sudden and it was just, uh, 
you know, it wasn't involving more than like probably 60 or 70 people, but you know, and it only lasted a few minutes, but that was my first encounter with uh, ARA and, or what became, what became ARA. And I was like really fascinated by this, you know, I thought, oh, well, this is, um, you know, there's a lot of energy here, you know, and uh, I liked, you know, Rodney Bobby Wash and I uh, wanted to support what he was doing. So I signed up. And then there was just a string of active, like demonstrations, which got bigger and bigger. As I said, in Toronto, there was a really big one in Ottawa, where the Heritage Front was on this kind of recruitment drive. And so they had booked, they were hosting a concert at the Boys and Girls Club in Ottawa. Uh, so they had bands, like racist rock bands, right, that would perform at these things with like super explicit lyrics and um, like racist lyrics and really advocating, you know, that kind of street violence, you know, that is kind of really closely associated with the, with the far right. Um, so they would have speakers talking about more kind of, you know, things that were a little bit closer to mainstream point of view, but then they would have this, this music, right. Um, to kind of rile up the crowd so they were having an event like this and there'd been a big demonstration called by people in ARA and other left groups. And uh, so there were hundreds, hundreds of anti-racists came out for that and um, sort of tried to um, march on this club, on this building where the show was happening and kind of prevent the show from taking place, you know, or interfere with it in some way or scare the people who were inside and encourage them to leave or create such a ruckus that the police had to shut it down. Something like that, you know, like it wasn't very well thought out. It wasn't very strategic, but it was just like, this is happening. It shouldn't be happening. Like let us do something. Right. So that. um, uh, and that went on for hours. Like, I mean, it, that was like the first time in Canada that pepper spray was used on demonstrations um, by police. Um, that was documented by a researcher. Um, she like compared, you know, looked at the whole trajectory of the use of pepper spray. So, uh, and, uh, you know, there was just a, it was a, you know, confrontation in front of this club, basically. And it ended late in the evening and the Heritage Front members actually marched out of the club and they were still kind of fighting along the sides, but they marched all the way up to Parliament Hill and like had speeches there on the hill with the flags behind them and everything. Like, you know, it was very intense. So that was like May 1993. Um, and then, um, you know, I could keep going, but we had, you know, Ari had a chance to kind of take some action soon after that, which uh, a story that's described in more detail in the book, um, where we, uh, it was a very different kind of action. We kind of, rather than just responding to their events and their activities, um, we decided to kind of go more on the offensive. And um, we found a place, one of the homes um, and home offices of, uh, of a Heritage Front member, the, the one who was responsible for the, for the hotline, right? and uh, took a march directly to that location, um, kind of evaded police control by making it unclear where we were going, you know, the whole thing. A couple hundred people and um, people, you know, without, you know, had the opportunity to kind of trash the house, right? So it was, again, I mean, it was, you know, pretty symbolic, but kind of, you know, heavy symbolic, right? A lot of broken windows. And, 
that was, you know, a very important turning point because um, at that point, then there was a fight later on in the street and the Heritage Front people got arrested. And that was kind of the moment, I think, where the state was like, this can't go on, you know, this is getting out of hand. And, um, you know, the forces were such in the city you know, we had enough good connections. There were other, you know, Rodney was very involved, you know, and it ended up kind of going, you know, good for the anti-racists because they did arrest the leadership of the Heritage Front and they did follow up with them and charge them with violating their bail conditions later and all of that stuff. And then meanwhile, you know, we were maintaining like a, a presence at the street level, right? So it was a moment where that kind of activism kind of changed the whole political environment, I would say. So we describe that in the book. And there are other um, stories like that in other cities as well. Like uh, Chicago had a similar kind of campaign a few years later against the an American group called the World Church of the Creator. And they sort of talk about how they're very, you know, militant and on the ground activism um, kind of changed the situation and made it hard for the world church of the creator to achieve what they wanted to achieve and then later let you know contributed to, to its ultimate demise i think things that are important about this whole story to me are it's like partly that it's about young people you know who like got organized to do something in their own scene in their own community in defense of their own community but then kind of had an impact beyond you know and it was very moving to be part of it because we didn't have anything. We didn't have money. We didn't have lots of connections. It was like very grassroots, you know? So that's really important. And I think also just, it's an example of a time when people who were, uh, people were embraced that militancy, embraced that radical politics, and were able to do something that had an impact, uh, again, beyond their own community. You know, and it, it's just a really good example of that. Great to speak with both of you. Thanks so much for your time. That was a conversation about the recently released book, We Go Where They Go, the story of anti-racist action. Thank you so much to Kirsten Schwartz and Gord Hill for being part of the program this week. I'd encourage everybody to check out this book. Um, and I think it's a very important effort to document some activist history. Free City Radio is produced and hosted by me, Stefan Kristoff, and we air weekly on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. on CJLO 1690 a.m. also in Geogeague, Montreal on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg at 10.30 p.m. on Tuesdays on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, BC on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and Saturdays at 7 a.m. on Met Radio 1280 a.m. in Toronto at 5.30 a.m. on Fridays and now on CKCU 93.1 FM in Ottawa on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. You can find our archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. And we are also a podcast. Look us up on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search Free City Radio. Thank you so much for being with us, and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>